All right. Good morning, everybody. For those of you who I haven't seen in a while, Happy New Year. And, and, yeah, that was underwhelming. And Happy Epiphany. Today is Epiphany. Everybody know that? Okay, you all got plans for this afternoon to go out and celebrate Epiphany? Does anybody know what Epiphany is? It's also called Three Kings Day. Three Kings Day, it's the time when, when the angel announced to the, to the kings and the magi and the star appeared and they had a way to follow to uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that's what it's about. We don't celebrate it much, we don't talk about it much, but in case you're interested or hear somebody talk about it, now, now you know. All right, so let's get on with the message. I am, um, we're starting a new series. This new series is in the book of Romans. And I am super, I'm always excited. I'm so blessed to get up and to be able to teach to this congregation. I love doing it. It excites me to learn new things. And it excites me when I hear from you that you learn new things and pick things up and maybe have revelation over something that you've never had before. So uh, I'm blessed to get to do that. But but we're moving into a series on Romans. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a change if you remember leading up to Christmas, we did Messianic Prophecy. We spent a few weeks there. And that was fun, but prior to that, we were in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we traveled at light speed through that, right? We were covering, I was covering a dozen different scriptures every weekend. The guys back in the tech booth, I was making them crazy because they had to like constantly do all these scriptures and, and get them up there for us. Um, and we did that because I had kind of a finite time frame, a start and a stop, and, and we needed to fit in all the, all, everything that happened in that time frame and be finished in time to start prophecy. This one's going to be a little bit different. We're going to take a step back, going to relax a little bit. There might only be a couple scriptures per weekend. Still the same depth. In fact, I think a lot more in depth in this one. We'll have time to really examine what the word says about these things. But so we may go, we're going to go into the spring, may even go into the summer, depending on what the Lord leads us to to do. But I think it's going to be exciting. And the reason I think that it's exciting to me is because it's a natural outflow of kind of where we have been in the book of Acts leading up to Christmas. You remember when we were in Acts, we were talking, you know, Acts primarily is about the birth of the church, right? How the church came about. It's about Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples and enabling them to go out and, and do the mission that, that Jesus Christ tasked them with, which was to go and make disciples. So that's what we see in the book of Acts. We see uh, the formation of the church. Obviously, it taught, we talked a little bit about Pentecost and what that meant and what happened there. And then we went into the various missionary journeys where, where Peter and Philip and, and Luke and Paul and all these guys went out and started their, started their journeys, we call them, right? Which is really the primary purpose for that was to fulfill that mission, to go out into the nations and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we see. Towards the end of Acts, we really, really focused on Paul and the Apostle Paul and about his radical conversion, right? How he started out as Saul persecuting the, the Christians, and then he had his own, his own epiphany or his own come-to-Jesus moment where he then was radically transformed and then used that, that radical nature that he had to go and proclaim Jesus Christ throughout the world. And so we were focusing on that. And as a part of that, we saw 
where Paul now traveled around to all these different cities, different towns, and each time he came to a new town, whether it's Ephesus or Corinth or anything like that, he stopped and he spoke to the church there, these forming churches that were formed really after Pentecost and, and as a result in many cases of Saul's persecution, the Christians scattered and they scattered to these remote towns and started their own churches there. Well, now after his conversion, he's traveling about to these towns and he's teaching them. He's teaching them about, uh, about Christ and about this thing that happened. They, they knew what happened and they knew basic theology, but in many cases, the, the, the word of the gospel was, was flashing too far too fast to really have that depth of instruction. We saw some of that when Apollos went to Corinth and started teaching them some things that were slightly off base, and so Paul had to get over there and kind of kind of fill him in, fill them in. wasn't a bad thing, but it was it was important that these individual towns had some apostolic authority. In other words, they would go and they would receive direct teaching from the apostles just to make sure that they were that they were all on the same page, that they were all teaching the correct things in the right way. So that's how this happens. And if you remember, when Paul was on one of these journeys, actually a couple different times, he talks about openly, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. I, I, I have a vision of going to Rome. I feel like we should go there. It was on his to-do list, in part to encourage the new church there, but also because he wanted to see Rome. Rome was an important city at that time, and he talked over and over again about wanting to go there. But for some reason, we know he was never quite able to get there, at least not in the way that he thought that he was going to get there. He ended up getting there later, um, but not as a, as a tourist, which is kind of what he was hoping for. So, so going into this book of Romans, it's going to differ a little bit from Acts. Acts we know was written by Luke. And it was written by Luke by his, own, by his own word. He said, I wrote this so that everybody would know what happened and how it happened and when it happened. He wrote it chronologically, and it's very easy to follow. And it's easy to look at the book of Acts then and say, well, that's just history. That's a history book. And dismiss it in some cases, but there's so much depth there. But Romans is different. Romans is very, very deep in theology. It's very, very deep in doctrine, which is, the mo which is one of the reasons why, if you've ever been a part of a Bible study before at any church anywhere, there's a good possibility that you've gone through the book of Romans at some point. And it's important to understand why that is. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. But Suffice it to say that Romans is very, very deep on theology. In fact, if you don't have a firm grip or an understanding of what is talked about in Romans, you're going to have a difficult time with your own personal theology because there's so much in there. It's such a depth, and it covers a lot of different subjects. Some subjects are brand newly introduced, um, and some are affirming and reaffirming those subjects that have already been talked about. Uh, but man, there's a depth there. There's a depth there, and it's exciting. And one of the reasons that it's exciting, and it's theology, is if you remember this obscure guy named Martin Luther. Who remembers? Anybody ever heard of this guy named Martin Luther? 
Well, Martin Luther, um, he was a monk. He was a theologian. He was actually the, the head theologian of, of a college. Um, he had devoted his life to studying and serving Jesus Christ. Okay? And it was actually the book of Romans that Martin Luther was studying, a specific passage that he was studying when he had this radical revelation that caused him to launch out and, and lead the, the Protestant Reformation, which we are all fruit of at this point. Unless you're Roman Catholic, you are a fruit of that Protestant Revol uh, Reformation. But before we even get into that part, a lot of you like to jump ahead to the Cliff's Notes version. Remember Cliff's Notes from high school or from college, right? I wanna, I'll do the work, but I wanna look at the Cliff's Notes first to see what I'm supposed to be learning from this work, right? That's what I always did. And then I, if time permitted, I went in and actually read the text. <laughs> I always meant to. But here's the Cliff's Notes version of what the book of Romans is about. The Cliff's Notes version, my Cliff's Notes version of what the book of Romans is about. It's this, righteousness is a gift from God meant to justify guilty, condemned sinners like us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Now, there's much more theology. There's much more teaching on gifts and things like that, and I'll go over what's in there a little bit later. But that's what you need to know. Righteousness is a gift. How many of us here, I want you to start thinking about this as I'm teaching through this. How many of us have tried to achieve righteousness? How many of us have tried to earn it? How many of us, at that moment when we first gave our heart to Jesus Christ and we remember, many of us can remember, okay, I was here, I was doing this, here's how it happened when we had that moment. Some of you have been believers in Christ for your entire life, and so maybe you don't have that moment, but a lot of us do. And I remember specifically when I had that moment, okay, my first thought was, this is amazing. My second thought is, Oh, I got to go home and burn my CD collection. <laughs> I got to delete half of my playlists, which I promptly did and then regretted some years later as I'm buying it all back because the Lord <laughs> never told me to do that. I just felt like I had to. How many of us have done so many things because we felt like we had to, to earn this righteousness, to achieve this righteousness? This is all about a gift. It's all about a gift given to us by God. And so that's what we're going to go into. So without further ado, let's, let's move forward. So again, I told you that, that this is the, actually the book that Martin Luther was studying as he had this, this radical transformation of his own. Remember, up to this point, he was a Roman Catholic monk. And he was, again, steeped in their tradition, brought up in there. He was teaching it devoted his life to this. And the scripture that he was reading, as he was reading through, as he was doing his own personal study, he stumbled upon one scripture that I think God highlighted to him and would not allow him to let go. He was so burdened to study this particular scripture. And here it is for you. It's Romans 1, verse 17. Now, his version didn't read exactly like this, and I'll go into that in a minute. This is ours. This is out of the NASB. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Here, remember in my version where it's capitalized like that, that's referencing Old Testament writings, and I'll talk to you about that in just a second. Now, the reason that this is important to illustrate that this is our version, this isn't the way that Martin Luther was reading it, he was actually reading it out of a, one of the very early Gutenberg Bibles, okay? In fact, the Gutenberg Press was invented around 1450, and it was only a handful of years after that that Martin Luther was actually reading this. And he was, re- he was reading one of less than 200 fully printed copies, Okay, the other ones were hand manuscripts in various places. These were printed right off the Gutenberg Bible, but there was less than 200 in existence at this time. Can you imagine that? Every one of them printed in Latin. Okay, that's important to know. And we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. But so he's reading a Latin version of the Gutenberg printed Bible. That's where he is, and he has this revelation. But before we get there, Before we dive into that deep into the pool and really start tearing this apart, I want to do a little of our own exegesis. Or if you took the the bedrock class, I taught a little bit about how to study the Bible, how to really do exegesis on a scripture, how to jump into it and really tear it apart. And I've been trying to introduce pieces of that to us here, but basically it involves going into a scripture. And before you even start to think about what it means, you look at the background. You look at who wrote it, when was it written, why was it written, who was the audience, what was going on. You try and get your mind around it. In other words, put yourself in that place and time where that was originally penned to better understand the meaning of it. So we're going to go in and we're going to do a little bit of that first. First of all, let's go, let's go into the very, very beginning and talk about what is Romans, Okay, we tend to talk in church easily. We're going to study Romans. Okay, some of you are thinking like, okay, like the movie Ben-Hur, I've seen that. Okay, we're going to show that. What are we going to, is this a history class about the Romans? It's not. When we talk about things like that, typically they're referring to a person or a people group that a particular letter or an epistle. Okay, when we see these letters like the, the book of Romans, the book of Romans is a letter actually written to a group of Romans in the church in Rome. Okay, so it's an epistle and a letter, same thing, interchangeable words there, and that's what it is. So when we refer to Romans, we're referring to the letter written by the Apostle Paul to this fledgling church in Rome. That's what we're talking about when when we refer to that. They were for instruction, sometimes encouragement, sometimes correction, An epistle could be written for any of those reasons. Who wrote Romans was, as we said, it was the Apostle Paul. Now, there are various um, ideas of what the Apostle Paul looks like, right? Everybody's got an idea of what Jesus looks like because we see pictures all over the place. Not so much with the Apostle Paul, but when you think about what he did, when you think about how powerful a man he was and how how he was able to command authority when he was going door to door, dragging Christians out of their homes. You picture this man who's like somewhat powerful, right? Kind of foreboding kind of a guy. In fact, Hollywood would have you believe that this is what the Apostle Paul looks like. That happens to be Hugh Jackman 
And it's a screenshot from a new movie called, I think it's called The Apostle Paul, that is in production right now. But that's Hugh Jackman as the Apostle Paul, okay? Where he found time to do CrossFit as he was out on his journeys, I don't know. All right, you can take that down off the screen because ain't nobody looking at me while that's up there. So. <laughs> so. That's what Hollywood would tell you. And I think it's important that we kind of have a little bit more of an accurate picture. So when we're looking for accuracy in terms of things that happened in the Bible, how many of you know you don't just have to look at the Bible? The Bible's a historical document, and it's backed up by other secular sources and historical documents that all corroborate the things that happened in the Word. That's how we know we can trust it. It's one of the reasons that we know that we can trust it. But there are multiple sources all over the world, some Roman, some Paul himself descriptions, some from the Bible, yes, but other descriptions that really put a fine point on what the Apostle Paul himself really looked like. Now, we're just talking physical appearance here. Again, multiple sources corroborate these descriptions. Number one, he was short. It talks about him being three cubits tall. How tall is three cubits? Four foot six. Four foot six. Again, multiple sources. He was balding. He, was, he had red hair. He had a ruddy complexion. Several sources, I love this, specifically state that he had a unibrow. <laughs> they didn't use that term. They said his eyebrows touched in the middle. He had crooked legs and he had a hooked nose. So when we picture the Apostle Paul, attractive guy, right? Slightly different than that first screen. Here's probably a little bit more realistic what he looked like. This was later, later in years, obviously. But even that's somewhat glamorized. He's got his sword there, and you know, he looks like a wise old man. His eyebrows don't touch. So even this is probably a little glamorized, but that's probably more realistic of, of what he looked like. He was a Roman citizen. Again, we've talked about this before. He's a Roman citizen born in Tarsus, which is in Syria, educated up there, educated fairly well. In fact, he, was, he had received education there, and basically, as, as what we would call grad school, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. Went down, studied under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was a Pharisee. So he learned not only teaching in Old Testament Scripture and Hebrew tradition and these things, he studied Pharisaical laws, okay? So he was very, very um, steeped in that tradition, okay? He was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. Gamaliel was a Pharisee. Paul's dad was a Pharisee. So he came from a long line of Pharisees, and he studied very much, and he was, it, Scripture itself says that he was a very dedicated student, Okay, so he was absorbing this. He was soaking it in. So, <coughs> excuse me. So this is where we are. And then we come to about his third missionary journey, approximately 56 AD or so. He's traveling around. He's been traveling around to all these cities. And if you know, every time he went into a new city, he would stop. He would meet with the Jews there. He would meet with the Gentiles there. And he would teach. He would teach about 
Jesus Christ. He would teach about what this really meant, this freedom in Christ, and how this new gospel looked. He would teach them extensively there, and then at some point he would either be kicked out of town, run out of town, threatened, or whatever, and he would leave, move on to the next town. And he would teach that again. Now again, remember along the way, he kept saying, I would like to go to Rome. But he never quite made it to Rome. In fact, again, we see that he, when he was in the city of Corinth, that's when he wrote the letter to the Romans. He could see that I'm not going to be allowed to go to Rome. He may not have understood why, but it wasn't going to work out. He wasn't going to get to Rome. So he writes this letter, this epistle to the Romans from there. And I think it's God's grace that he wasn't allowed to go. Now, he was probably thinking, oh, man, I'm so close. I'm in Corinth. I'm so close to Rome. I can almost touch it. But I'm not going to get to go. So he ends up writing this letter. He ends up writing this letter to the Romans, and it is detailed. It is extremely detailed, and it is extremely deep in theology and doctrine. And that's important because when we think about epistles, again, I told you they're written for encouragement or for correction or for instruction. The church in Rome didn't really necessarily need any of that. They were doing pretty good. They weren't going off the rails. They were were pretty solid. The church in Rome, if you think about it, was actually founded by a group of Jews who happened to be living in Rome who had traveled to Jerusalem to be there for the Passover festival. The same one that everybody else was at when Pentecost happened. Okay, so it's very, very likely that those disciples who, who had traveled in from Rome to come to Jerusalem to be there for the festival, they were very likely in that upper room and they were a part of this group that saw the Holy Spirit come upon them. And it was, they were partakers in that experience And then they left. As a result, in many cases, some of them just, well, it's over. I have to go back home. But many of them fled, literally, because Saul was running around persecuting them all. So they go back to Rome carrying this gospel message with them. But this is just a group of, for the most part, ordinary people who had traveled to Jerusalem for for the Passover. They didn't have any apostolic authority. They didn't have any direct teaching from that high level to explain to them how this all works. So basically, they were on their own. They went back to Rome, which was a city of over a million people at that time. That's a massive city. It's a commerce center. It's the the headquarters of the Roman Empire. It's an important place. And they're starting this church. And so they've got plenty of people, but they don't have a lot of instruction. What they have is an experience. And an experience will carry you pretty far. But they needed some direct instruction. And so when Paul sees, I'm not going to be able to make it there, he pens this letter to that church. And he outlines all kinds of deep doctrine. And again, I think that's God's grace in that because had he been able to travel and go to Rome, then he would have sat down with them for a week, a month, a year, however long it took to verbally transmit this doctrine And they would have received it, but we wouldn't have it. What we would have is maybe a follow-up, you know, letter saying, hey, I know you're doing good in all these things, but let me talk about this one item, which is kind of like most of the other epistles are. 
But instead, we've got this deep, rich letter that we get to have and we get to look back on and refer to. So it's, it's, I think it's God's grace sometimes that he doesn't allow us to go and do the things that we have in mind because he's got a bigger picture. And we get to be the recipients of that. So when you look at what Paul's background was at his instruction, where his family came from, and his instruction under the rabbi Gamaliel, and where he was, and then you see that experience with Jesus, how is it sometimes we think, we, sometimes we just write it off and say, an experience with Jesus will change you radically, end of story. And that's true. However, when he was so steeped in that tradition and so rabid of a Pharisee, how could he have so quickly just converted and gone on teaching doctrine? Now, to us, it's quickly. Scripture actually says that he went away for a while and he received instruction. And, and you know, he, he grew in that and he learned in that. But how quickly it happened, really, in the scheme of things. And I think part of that is due to the fact that he didn't need to forget and relearn everything he had learned. It wasn't a matter of everything you have ever been taught is wrong. Throw that out. We're starting over again in kindergarten. It wasn't that. What he needed was a fresh perspective on what he knew. He wasn't going to throw out the old gospel and all the things that he had already known, but what he needed was a fresh perspective. And he got that when he met Jesus. And with those new eyes and that fresh perspective, then he was able to go out and teach the same things, but through different eyes and from a different perspective. And I think that's so amazing that he got to do that. So that's a little bit of the background of the book, why it was written, why it even exists, and, the, and some of the depth of, of instruction that we're going to be able to find in there um, is just amazing. Here's some of the themes that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. Remember, I say it, it's going to go maybe 12 weeks, 16 weeks. It's going to go something in there, depending on what the Spirit wants us to do with this. But here, listen to some of the major themes that are in the book of Romans. Justification by faith alone. Principles of spiritual leadership. Principles of divine judgment. Our universal nature of sin. How to attain salvation. Sanctification, election, there's a big one, spiritual gifts, how to live within a secular government, how to live with each other, and principles of what liberty in Christ really looks like. That is a depth of teaching. And we're going to cover all that stuff in the coming weeks. So I am so excited. There's, so there's some subjects in there that a lot of churches don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. But it's in Scripture. It's in the Word. And it's in there because God wants us to understand it and have a grasp on it. And we're going to have a grasp on it by the time we're finished here. So let's go back. So remember when I said that the book of Romans was um, what Martin Luther, again, the, the father of, of Protestantism, uh, the, the beginning of the Reformation, that's what he was studying when he had this revelation. So let's go back there. Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Okay, that's what he was studying. Now again, this man had devoted his life to study. Why is it 
That, that was so earth-shattering to him at the time. Why is it that that upset his apple cart so much and put such a burden in his heart that he couldn't stand it, and it actually, actually sparked the Protestant Reformation, which is a big thing? Anybody have any ideas why that was so earth-shattering to him? Well, here's why. Because much as I teach that we should do our own exegesis, we should go deeper than just reading the words on the paper or taking somebody's word for it. Much more than doing that, we should go in and study it for ourselves. Do our own exegesis. Look at the root meaning of these words. And sometimes you might go, why do I need to know the difference between the Hebrew and the Greek meaning? And why do I need to look at all that? Let me show you why. That scripture down there, but the righteous man shall live by faith, actually references Old Testament scripture. In this case, it's Habakkuk. Let's show them that. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's focus for a minute on the word righteous, because that's the one that Martin Luther was focusing on. The word righteous, we all have our own opinion of what righteous means, but it's not always what we think it should be. So as Martin Luther was reading through this and he got to that point and the Lord would not let him go past that scripture, past that word righteous. He started studying it and he started praying about it and he started sweating over it and pouring over it and praying about it. And what he found was something very, very simple. Very simple, but something that radically changed the way that he looked at the gospel. And here's why. Up until this point, remember I said at the beginning, up until this point, the versions that they had to work from were written in Latin. They were Latin translations. This word righteous, word righteous and the word justified in the Greek, which is what Romans was written in, okay, is the same word. Righteous and justified, same word. However, in Latin, it's not the same word. Latin, it translates as a word called, that's pronounced justificare. In Latin, that word would be justificare, and that's what everybody, including those who taught Martin Luther, including him, everybody in the church, all the priests, they all taught that word as justificare. Justificare is a term that comes from the court system or the legal system in Rome. It's a legal term. When you went before a judge, I know none of you have ever been, so this is hypothetical, follow me along. You stand before a judge and he judges you guilty. You have to pay a price, okay? That price is either a fine or it's service or it's you go to jail, whatever that price is. Once that price is paid, if it's a fine, when you sign your name and you hand over the check, if it's jail and the minute you get out of jail, as soon as that price has been paid in full, you are considered justificare. You are justified. You have paid the price and you're justified. Meaning, to be righteous is to work to pay the price. And once you pay the correct price or the right amount or do the right amount of service, whenever you do enough, you have earned 
righteousness. Can you see where they would have gotten off base? Just a simple translation of the word righteous. Meaning, okay, here's how to be righteous. You pay the price. This is where the Roman Catholic doctrine of of, um, indulgences came from. Everybody heard of the, the doctrine of indulgences? What this meant, what an indulgence was, is that if you sinned, you could go to your priest, again, Roman Catholic, you could go to your priest and you could confess and then essentially write a check to wash those away. Or you could do enough of the sacraments. You could say enough Hail Marys, these sorts of things. You could do enough to then go ahead and achieve your righteousness. The really cool thing about indulgences is if you knew, like you're sitting here going, oh, I'm going to that party tonight. I know I'm going to get out of control. I know I'm going to do some things I shouldn't do. Father, I'm going to go ahead and just write the check now. You could do that. You could pay in advance for sins you knew you were going to commit, and you would be absolved. Okay, that's that doctrine of indulgences. Martin Luther felt that that was wrong. He knew that that was wrong in his heart, but he didn't know why. He didn't really know how to explain and certainly not come against the word of God. But then when he dug deeper and said, that's not what the word of God says. What the word of God says is this, is that word righteous translates in Greek. I got to find it here because I've outpaced my notes. Um, In Greek, translates as a word, and I won't pronounce it correctly, but it's diakosune. In Greek, that word, again, righteousness and justified, same word, is diakosune. Here's what that word means. It means to declare as righteous. Church, God has declared you righteous. Through your faith in Jesus Christ and through his atonement for us, God has declared you righteous. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to pay the price for it. Jesus did that. That's important for us to know. How many of us give our hearts to Christ? We feel new, we feel renewed, but we still have that human nature in us that thinks if it's free, there's not much value to it. Free things don't have that much perceived value. There's a marketing concept that you raise the price until it, re- until it attains that point where people will still buy it, but it's got that perceived value. Things that are free don't have that perceived value. So we struggle with that free gift of grace and mercy that God offers us, that justification by faith, and we want to attach a price to it, don't we? What do I have to do? Do I have to go to church more? Do I have to burn my CD collection? There's got to be something I have to do, and I'm willing to do it because this is radical. I feel it. I want this. I'm willing, and I'll happily do this. But we're off base when we think we have to earn it. God declares you righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's it. End of story. In fact, it's earth-shattering. Because after receiving this revelation, here's what Martin Luther said. Again, this man devoted his life to serving, serving the Lord. 
and serving others. He was a monk. He did it, and a deep theologian. But here's what he had to say when that revelation came to him. Reading that very same verse that we've been reading. He says this, When I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. How many of us are standing at the gates of paradise? They're open. They're inviting. And we're trying to figure out how to get in. Many times I feel like this. You guys got that? I know we have it. Not that. The comic. The picture. Church, we are not smart enough or fast enough or good enough or anything enough. You can take that down to earn it. If that door were closed, we couldn't figure out how to get in. It ain't happening. But the door's not closed. The gates are open. They are swung open wide for those who confess faith in Jesus Christ. And that's it. But many of us are standing at the gate still trying to figure it out. Church, we just need to walk through. That's all you need to do is walk through. So I want to take just a moment and ask, is there anybody out here? Remember earlier when I said how many of us try to earn it? How many of us think that there's got to be a price to pay and so we went out and we did something? Or maybe we're still in the process of trying to earn it. If you've got something like that that the Lord has spoken to you and it's kind of on your heart, I want to share that. I want to take a second and see if anybody has any testimonies. I don't know if anybody does. But I know we've all got an experience about that. Who has something that they would like to share that might be encouraging about a time they went through where they were trying to to do to achieve? They're trying to do enough to earn it. Not realizing how free it was. Anybody? Well, I was raised a Catholic, one of 11, and I remember before I even got saved, the Lord was touching my heart and telling me there was more to Mass, more to confession, more to constantly doing things over and over again. So I, the Lord showed me that, and I remember going home and asking my mom, there's got to be something more than this, just going to church. So be encouraged that way if you've got people that are non-believers and they're still stuck there. God's working on their hearts, and he did that for me. And there was freedom once I did get saved. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. Anybody else? That testimony that you have about coming through something like that or the way that it's played out in your life could be something that encourages someone who's going through it right now. So don't be afraid to raise your hand if you've got something. I can wait all day. I got nowhere to go. It's okay. It's okay. I just remember as a young teenager, I was saved. Um, but I, uh, I didn't think God loved me. <laughs> and that might sound really weird, but, um, you know, you grew up, you knew, how, you knew the weight of salvation. But, you, but I remember just going through a really hard time. And... Uh, 
and feeling very sinful just because uh, my family, uh, my mother had died, my dad remarried, and so, you know, as a teenager, you're going through all kinds of emotional turmoil, and one of those things that you're feeling is anger and bitterness and hatred and just a, a range of emotions that feel so unlovable. And, and I remember always going to church and just feeling so unlovable. And I'm like, and I remember just always crying whenever there was a song about God's love toward me. And um, it wasn't until actually the way God kind of helped me to grab hold of that love was through his body and how this certain woman in the church just loved me. And I just felt this unconditional love. And so I want to encourage people in that sense that some of the, the most convincing evidence of, God love, of God's love comes through the body of Christ. And some of the most convincing message of the gospel comes through that love. Because, mm. you know, I knew the religious way to, to salvation, but I didn't know the easiest way was just to receive his love and Amen. embrace it. But anyway. Nice. That's good. Thank you, Melinda. Thank you. Anyone else? Last chance. You know, again, we are, so, we are so conditioned by the world and by our experiences to, to think nothing's free. How many times have we heard that? Nothing's for free. And if it is, there are strings attached. So really, nothing's free. We have to work for those things that are of value. Nothing's freely given. Even the letter to the Romans. <laughs> Technology is fantastic. I have to, I got a smartwatch and I have to silence it all the time because I silence my phone in there, but it Bluetooth's here. And so my watch will speak to me every now and then. It's only mildly distracting. I want to go back really quick and just one more time read that scripture that Martin Luther, or that not the scripture, the, the quote from Martin Luther upon his revelation. Now remember, Served the Lord his entire life. New scripture backward and forward, but never had this revelation. He said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. If you know Jesus Christ, and you're standing at those gates, you're standing at those gates trying to figure out how to go through into that life that he has called you to, there's nothing you're going to be able to figure out. Here's a secret. It really is free. And it's offered to you. Sinners, no matter where you are, it's free to you. And there's no price to be paid because Jesus paid that price. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Jesus paid that price for you. It is free. And there are not strings attached well, I take that back. There's one. You have to accept it. You have to accept the free gift. Now, whether you walk through those gates and you live in that abundant life, that's your choice. If you want to stand outside the gates of paradise looking in, wondering how to get in, you're free to do that. But church, I'm telling you, you don't have to. Walk through those gates. Take your baggage, take whatever you've got, and take it in there because... 
Jesus can deal with it. You don't have to figure out how to pare down. This isn't the airline counter where you're trying to get your luggage under 50 pounds so that you can get in, okay? Take it all and give it to him when you get there. He'll deal with it. You don't have to deal with your stuff before you accept the offer. And if you're sitting here and you've never accepted that offer and you know of Jesus, but you've never really felt that real pull in your heart that he wants me where I am. I don't have to fix it and then come to him. I don't have to clean up, take a shower first and go present myself. He'll take you where you are. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, I want that. The word says it's just as easy that you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that he was resurrected and rose again. And believe that he offers that gift. That righteousness in him is offered for free to those who love him. That's all it is. And so as we go in, we're going to celebrate communion together. I'm going to pray over us first. But as we celebrate communion, let's do it with those thankful hearts of what Jesus Christ did for us. And because of his atoning work, we don't have to work for that. We achieve righteousness through him and through that blood of Jesus. That's how God sees us. It's through nothing that we need to do. But let's celebrate that fact. So let's take communion. At the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers, and you can serve yourself there. Gabe and I will be up front, and we'll have wine and bread and crackers, and, and we would be happy to serve you up there. But let's do that with just thankful hearts. Now, if you're struggling over anything, you're, you're struggling with, with understanding what that freedom looks like, or maybe you've made that decision and you want somebody to pray with you, we have our prayer team in the back. For any reason that you want or need prayer, they are back there and they would be happy to spend some time agreeing with you that the Lord is good. They'll also be back there to answer questions if you have questions about any of this. But let's, let's be thankful for that gift, amen? So Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us. We thank you that we've been taught that there's a price for everything, but God, in your economy and in your kingdom, it's backwards. And the best things are free. The best things are freely given to us, offered to us because of what your son Jesus did. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you see us not through our baggage and through our self-doubt and through our worry and through our shame, but you see us righteous and washed clean through the blood of Jesus. And every one of us today can sit here and we can claim that very righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Lord, those of us who are standing at those gates of heaven and we're looking in, still trying to figure out how to walk through the gates or when the right time is. Lord, I want you just to speak to us all now. You know who's here with those kinds of doubts and those kind of worries. Lord, speak to us now and say the time is now. The place is now. Walk through the gates and claim the gift that I have freely given to you. There's no more waiting. There's no more right time than right now because Father God is reaching out to you, church. He loves you where you are and who you are and everything you got going on. And he loves you. And he's here for you. 
Father, we thank you. We thank you for everything that you do through us and in us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. 
shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, now you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up. This is for somebody in here today. When I was a teenager, I gave my life to Christ. And I got caught up in a repetitive sin. And I had uh, God on one side going, you need to stop. Your life's going to be better. You can focus on me, and I'm going to help you stop this cycle. And I had the devil on the other shoulder going, you're not good enough. You can't stop this. God doesn't love you. But it says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And I overcame that through the blood of Jesus. And you can too. I just encourage you, if that's you today, just give it up to God. And oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down. Fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. And we couldn't earn it, we don't deserve it. Still, he gives himself away. And of the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of We want to invite you at this time. If you need prayer, if you've got some physical healing you need or there's something you're trying to break through, uh, prayer team's in the back and they'd love the honor to pray with you. Uh, so go ahead and step out now if that's you.
this morning and I told everybody last night stick with me because I do have a point um, I love football I love sports I love football mainly I'm from the south not an Alabama fan though um, but basically what I was doing I was I, I love the game I love the sportsmanship I love the possibility of big plays and big scores and the excitement that comes with that and as I was preparing for this weekend, God super convicted me. Because I'm singing and I'm, you know, listening to the songs and everything. And in the back of my head, I'm like, ooh, the playoffs are on tonight. Yes, I get to watch that. And all of a sudden, God said, but why aren't you that excited about me? And I was like, touche, God. Um, but I got to thinking about it. And he just started pouring into me and he was just like, you know, like you get so excited about this. And we, as a people, we get so excited about very trivial things and we think that they're not true. We think they're really important. But my mom always used to say, is that gonna matter tomorrow? Is who wins this game gonna matter tomorrow? And the answer is no. Not unless you're getting the paycheck, then maybe. But it's not, to us, it's not gonna matter. And the biggest thing that I took away from that is 
It is the time for us to get excited about God. It is time for us to get excited about what he did for us thousands of years ago. It is excited. It's the time to be excited about the big plays that he is doing in our lives that we're not even recognizing and, and taking for granted. So instead about getting excited about, I don't know, you can get excited about a raise, you can get excited about football, you can get excited about whatever, but don't let that be the only thing and the biggest thing that you're getting excited about in life because that's not gonna matter tomorrow. And my mom always used to say, you're storing up treasures in heaven. Football and all the things of this earth that we're getting excited about and replacing for the excitement of God, those are not our treasures in heaven. God is our treasure in heaven. So it's time to get excited about that. And this, this next verse really stuck with me on that. The words, please listen as you are shouting them because it is exciting. It is something to shout about. It is something to praise about. It is something to be excited about. So sing with us this last verse of this song and get excited about Jesus. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. And out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Let's sing that again as loud as we can.
And I believe you are the way and the truth and the life. Cause I believe that you are the way and the truth and the life. I believe you are the way. The truth, the lie, I believe you are the way, the truth, and the lie, I believe through every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance. You are my fortress, oh, you are my portion, you are my hiding place. I believe through every battle, through every heartbreak, through every circumstance, no, I believe that you are my fortress, oh, you are my portion.